Living Stones is a weekly conversation about living a truly Catholic life. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers and Ken Hellenius help you deepen your relationship with Christ and His Church, discussing practical ways to grow in faith, participate more fully in the liturgy, and practice charity towards all. Hello and welcome to Living Stones. I'm your co-host, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, and joining me in the virtual studios, as always, is my uh, one of my favorite people in the entire world, uh, one of my my closest friends, and um, you know the the man who put sun in sunshine, oh. Ken Hellenius. <laughs> Ken, how you doing, my friend? I am well, thank you, Deacon. Uh, you know, you mentioned the sun, and of course, I'm sitting here in South Bend, Indiana, where today, uh, as we're recording this, it's uh, 11 degrees outside, and it's <laughs> snowing on us with lake effect snow off of uh, off of oh, Lake Michigan. Yikes. I haven't seen the snow in or the sun in weeks, uh, but uh, but no, <laughs> I, I appreciate your kind words. Thank you. <laughs> Well, it's a uh, forty degrees and raining here in Portland. Well, then uh, I wouldn't. Uh, I you have nothing to complain about. <laughs> see, I know, and people say, "Well, how could you stand with all the rain and you don't see the sun?" I say, "Hey, look, you don't have to shovel rain." So I'm with <laughs> that. <laughs> it was. Uh, I I knew it was cold when I let the dogs out last evening before we went to bed and my elderly dog Phil who's about uh, 12 and a half years old he stepped off the off the uh, out the back door took two steps and uh, did his business and then came right back in uh, he said nope I'm I'm good thanks where's the puppy <laughs> She uh, she went on a little journey around the backyard because she's she doesn't have the experience of the wise man that is our older dogs. <laughs> it, it's chilly out there, though. Wow. Eleven degrees. Mm. And that's not counting the wind chill. It was negative seven when you count the wind chill. And so it was a bit uh, a bit brisk. I actually considered putting on long pants. Uh, for <laughs> so. Well, yeah, I, I remember those days. uh and indeed, I, I don't miss them at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, uh, you know, you, you, uh, we don't have to at least worry too much about uh, getting flooded out right now. So that's good. So, All right. Excellent. Well, Deacon, I happen to know that you are uh, going to be on a cruise with a bunch of awesome uh, Catholic speakers, fellow Catholic speakers and, and uh personalities uh, over the next uh, week or so. And I want to know a little bit more about uh, about what you're going to be doing. Yeah, it's called the Good News Marriage Cruise. And uh, this is a uh, postponed cruise and a slightly uh, changed uh, itinerary because of COVID-19. This was supposed sure. to happen last January. We we're supposed to go to a, um, uh, had a little bit different itinerary, what islands we were going to in the Caribbean. But that's changed now because of COVID, so um, we're going to a few less places. But still, uh, it's going to be awesome. We're going to uh, it's a bunch of married couples okay, uh, from all around the country, and we're going to go to uh, Bahamas, Mexico, and Honduras as part of the cruise. And we will be joined by the likes of uh, Dr. Scott Hahn, Father Mike Schmitz, Father John Ricardo, wow. uh, Father Leo Padalinghung. Uh, Al Cresta, Dr. Ray Garendi, uh, Teresa Tamio. Wow. Uh, gosh, man, it's just it's gonna be it's gonna be awesome. 
I mean, that's obviously so many people who are well-known among listeners to Catholic radio and people who watch uh, Catholic television and things like that. I assume there's going to be a Bible in a week uh, produced there with Father Mike uh, with you uh, on the ground? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. We'll we'll have to see. But uh... And somehow I got invited on this thing. I'm like, what? <laughs> oh, no, that's that's awesome. I mean, I, these are people I've admired for a long time, especially Dr. Han. Yeah. You know, who who I've uh, who came to my talk when I spoke at Steubenville earlier. Uh, oh, last, well, I said earlier. This is already 2022. <laughs> that's <laughs> so right. Last year. Um, yeah. You know, so it'd be good to, to see and catch up with him again. And we're actually working on a project, which I'm not... Um, you know, prepared to talk about right now, <laughs> but uh, but we are we are Dr. Han and I are working on something that will probably see the light of day in 2023. Awesome. Well, what presentation uh, are you going to be giving during this uh, Good News Marriage Cruise? Well, they they want me to give. So Father Mike Schmitz is going to give the opening talk, and he want me to give the closing talk, and I'm also going to deacon and preach at several of the masses as well. Uh, but my closing talk is going to be, okay, so these couples have just had this amazing experience on the cruise. And plus I get a chance to listen to all the other talks and kind of like bring them in. But my talk is going to be, um, you know, what now? How do we move forward? How do you keep the flame and the marriage alive after having this amazing experience? So I'm going to give some some kind of practical, some with the theological, but then also some practical, real-world, hands-on things that couples can do. So That's awesome. Yeah. Fun. Cool. Well, uh, I am envious and I wish I'd signed up. Uh, Julie and I, uh, Julie's always telling me she wants to go on a cruise. And oh. uh, this is the time of year when it's, again, when it's 11 degrees in South Bend, when somebody should do something like a cruise or something like that. But uh, maybe, maybe next time. We'll see. Uh, all right. Well, now, Deacon, for the last few weeks, we have been discussing this wonderful uh, document that the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops uh, published after their meeting in November uh, called The Mystery of the Eucharist in the Life of the Church. And uh, when we last left off, we were discussing the real presence of Christ in uh, uh, in the Eucharist. Uh, and this is a, a paragraph... Uh, we're going to pick up our conversation kind of paragraph 22, and it's uh, so we were just talking about how Christ is truly present in the Eucharist in a way that is unlike his his uh, presence in in any other kind of way. He is truly and substantially present in the species of the Eucharist, the bread and the wine. He become the body and the blood of Christ, and that's where we pick up our conversation tonight. You know, I was thinking about this, Ken. You know, I'm working on this book um, right now on racism. And um, in the chapter that I have devoted to critical race theory, I was talking about nominalism. You know, and and, 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 I, and I was thinking about our show and I thought, what is a connection here? You know, nominalism taught that, well, let me give the definition and I'll explain it. Yeah, please. Nominalism basically says that reality cannot be known through the use of universal and abstract concepts, but only through the empirical study of specific individual objects. So for example, if I said dog right now, everybody listening knows what I mean when I said dog. There's not a dog in front of us. You can't see the dog, but in your mind, you've conceptualized and visualized an idea of a dog. You know, you probably had Phil 
in your yep. mind, you know? Yeah. I, you know, we, we probably had a Doberman pincer. Other people had a boxer. Other people had a, you know, a sheepdog, whatever, you know, but, but you have the idea of dog. Now, nominalists would say that's not real. That doesn't really exist. The only way you could know for sure that there is a dog, if the dog was in front of you, you could touch it, smell it, you know, uh, take a blood sample, take a hair sample, feed it. I mean, then you know it's real. Okay. Now, think about the nominalist thought going into the Protestant Reformation. And it's that kind of thinking that actually caused the Protestant reformers to, to move away from the constant teaching of the church that Jesus Christ was present in the Eucharist, right? Because, you know, the, the idea of, of transubstantiation and the metaphysical reality surrounding what transubstantiation is, bread and wine becoming the body, blood, soul, divinity of Christ. The, the whole thinking was if you, it still is bread and wine after the consecration, right? Because it, it still looks and feels and smells and tastes right. like that. But the reality, what we're saying is the reality and the nature of what bread and wine is no longer exists. See, only there's only God. So now you can see at least a little bit of this philosophical background as to why Protestants and others have a really hard time with the idea of transubstantiation because of this idea of things cannot be known unless they can be imperially experienced. Yeah, the what is present in my senses right now overrides the idea of a, a larger understanding. And as yes. you say, an abstract understanding, but it's really... Because, like you say, the concept of dog means, you know, four legs, a tail, wags, those sorts of things. But I get distracted by the fact that I'm thinking of my specific dog right here. And in the Eucharist's case, I get distracted by the fact that it looks and smells like bread and wine, when in reality, there's the, it is the universal Christ truly present is what is what I'm seeing and, and touching and tasting. And I need to, and that disconnect in a way. Exactly, huh. exactly, okay. and, and but and th that's a powerful reality for us as Catholics, right? You see, and this is why we have to know our faith. I mean, yeah, you don't have to Catholics in, in the pew don't have to know what nominalism is, but this is why we have to trust the Church when she because I mean Jesus' words, and we talked about this last time, so there's no reason to, to rehash it. But Jesus' words are very clear. The Scriptures are very clear. He spoke clearly, firmly, directly. The language in both the Old and New Testament testify to this, you know, the, the Greek in the New Testament, Hebrew in the Old Testament, testify to the reality that Jesus was speaking, um, he was speaking uh, personally and clear, like this is not a sign, not a symbol. So, so that's why, so it's that biblical understanding that church uh, combines with the philosophical understanding, mostly from, of course, Aristotle, right, from who St. Thomas Aquinas borrowed from, to bring it all together so we can have this really deep, rich understanding of Christ's presence in the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, right? And then paragraph 23 goes on to talk about how this presence is with us in things like Eucharistic uh, exposition and adoration and benediction, processions, 40-hour devotions, which many parishes are still doing to extend the reality of this great gift into our everyday lives. Yeah. And and I love also, uh, you know, this has happens to me as we're recording this. This is the day each week when my parish hosts exposition and adoration. And so after we're done recording today, I actually get to go to my parish and 
spend time with Christ in the Eucharist during exposition and spend an hour with him praying in his presence. Sure, it's not, I'm not going to consume him, but I'm going to be with him, literally with my God. And this is what the apostles at Gethsemane had the invitation to do, to spend an hour with him, as Christ said, you know, could you not even spend one hour with me? This is what I get to do each week when I go to Eucharistic Adoration. This is what we're all invited to do and can do any time when you step into a church and you kneel before the Eucharist in the tabernacle. Whether or not Christ is exposed in the monstrance, you can spend time with the Lord. And this is the sort of prayer that actually deepens our faith, and it deepens our understanding and our appreciation for the gift of the Eucharist. And that's one of the things, it's become a great blessing, especially, you know, as we continue to suffer from the effects of of uh, kind of the lockdowns and things like that. And I know we've talked about this many times before over the past two years now, but the Eucharist and Eucharistic adoration is sometimes the only way that we can be with the Lord each week. Uh, you know, and so this is a great blessing that Christ doesn't leave us alone in between masses, right? In mass, we get the idea because we are receiving Christ in the, in the, the, you know, the bread and the wine in the, in the host and in the chalice, we're physically receiving Christ, but he doesn't leave us. He actually stays with us and abides with us in the tabernacle. And that's the beauty of the Eucharist being really, truly, substantially present. Uh, that's beautifully said. And, you know, it's about being in the presence of the person that you love, right? <laughs> it's just really yeah. what it comes down to. And, and the great gift, he said, Christ in the tabernacle, um, the fact that he's there and is able to be present to the sick, to those in yeah. prison. To those who don't access to the sacraments, to access the mass, you know, I mean, the pandemic aside, I mean, right. in jail, you can't go to mass when you want. You know, if you're uh, in an assisted living community or homebound, you can't go to mass whenever you want. So Christ has to come to you. And yeah. there he is in the Eucharist, still able to give himself and be present to, to those who cannot receive him in holy sacrifice of the mass. I love it. Well, this next section of the document uh, focuses on how Holy Communion is has this also other meaning of putting us in communion with one another. Uh, and so this section, beginning in paragraph 24, is called Communion with Christ and the Church. Um, and it says, Through this sacrament, the pilgrim church is nourished, deepening her communion with the triune God, and consequently with one another. And this is what the word communion means. The sacrament of the Eucharist is called Holy Communion precisely because, as the, the bishops say, by placing us in inti intimate communion with the sacrifice of Christ, we are placed in intimate communion with him and through him with each other. I recently read a reflection uh, uh, in um, the, uh, I believe it was in First Things, that mentioned that um, the, the person who was writing said that she when she goes to mass after she receives communion and she's praying, you know, goes back to her pew and she's kneeling there and she's praying in Thanksgiving, she sneaks a peek at the, at the other members of the parish who are going up to receive communion. And I realize I do the same thing because what I'm realizing is all of these people who are going forth to receive Holy communion are receiving at that very moment, the same gift that I now have in my heart, the same gift of Christ himself. And I am sharing with them this intimate communion with God, with the God who 
loves us and sustains us through the Eucharist and gives us this, uh, you know, you might call it way bread for the journey, this foretaste of the eternal banquet we are all receiving together. And that means the person walking up that I may know is a person that I have a disagreement with, you know, politically or, or we disagree on, you know, X, Y, or Z. We are joined in communion together because we are receiving the same Eucharist, the gift of Christ himself. And that's an incredibly healing experience to realize that we are all loved by the same God who sacrificed himself for us and now gives himself to us. Yeah, beautiful. And, um, you know, I think about the, 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 the flip side of that you know, our separated brothers and sisters, you know, including the Orthodox who have all valid sacraments, you know, it's just, yeah, you know, and, um, you know, just the, the whole thing with the Pope, you know, <laughs> that guy, but, but um, the fact that we can't have communion and we can't, in a sense, really fulfill Christ's desire in John's gospel that they may be one, fathers, you are one and I are one. And also our Protestant brothers and sisters, um, who have different understanding of of communion and, and Eucharist, um, in a sense than than we do, you know, and and the fact that you know they can't receive and we can't receive that that whole thing, you know, that, that that's this is a little bit of a sadness. There it shows us we still have work to do, yeah. you know, to fulfill Christ's command to be one. That doesn't mean we compromise our beliefs, but we continue to to dialogue, we continue to talk, we continue to pray, and work together. Um, so, I, and I think the more we can do that, I think the greater witness will be to this world, you know, cause the world mm -hmm. sees us, Christianity as divided, you know? And so yeah. if we, if we stood on one front, um, as one voice against the, um, the attacks of the culture on, on faith and, and people of faith, boy, I mean, imagine the impact that we can have if we all spoke with one voice, if we all sang if you will, off the same sheet of music, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, what kind of symphony that would be like, what that would sound like to the world with all of the Christians singing with one voice. That'd be awesome. That's the real challenge in the invitation of the Eucharist, isn't it? I mean, you kind of hinted at there, the fact that the, that because we cannot all receive Holy communion, because we are not actually in communion of heart and mind together, it's amazing when you when I hear my brothers and sisters, Protestant brothers and sisters who say, why are you keeping me from that? And, and my, in my mind, my thought is, well, because when I say amen, when I receive Holy Communion, when I say amen, I'm saying amen that I believe. I truly believe what the church teaches about the Eucharist. And so I have to assent in humility to those teachings. I have to assent in humility to what the Holy Catholic Church teaches and to acknowledge that this is a sign that I am in communion with, with all who receive. And so when people express a desire for the Eucharist, who themselves cannot yet receive the Eucharist, that's actually an act of grace working in their hearts. That desire, as we hear even in the Eucharistic prayer, our desire to thank you is itself your gift, Lord. And the desire to receive you in Holy Communion is itself God tugging at our heartstrings. And so if you are listening to us and you're saying, I want the Eucharist, spend time in prayer and spend time in reflection on that fact that God is inviting you to the Eucharist. Christ is inviting you to be in communion with him, with himself, and with his church. 
And it is an act of humility that he's inviting you to, but the gift of the Eucharist is communion with him and it's communion with his body. And if you feel that desire, that's God really calling you. And yes, it's hard, but sometimes, you know, this is, this is the call and this is the invitation. And we as Catholics, we as Catholics who are in communion shouldn't put, you know, uh, stumbling blocks in the way. You know, we need to invite and to pray that we may all be one as Christ prayed. Father, I pray that they may all be one. That's what the real invitation is. Yeah. And at the same time, we can't create a sense of uh, false communion either. You know, when you hear what the the bishops in Germany, for example, are doing by actively giving Protestant spouses of Catholics communion, you know, and and, and a couple of things. It's not honest. No. You know, I mean, if if there's if they don't have a belief in Christ in the Eucharist, again, as you said, Ken, that should be something people should be praying about, discerning about, having dialogue about, trying to deepen their understanding, and not just give them, I mean, you know, because it's not honest. If they don't believe that's truly Christ, then they, they, they shouldn't receive. And if you look at what the fathers of the church say, that's very, very clear. Um, that that people could not receive communion precisely because they weren't in communion, right? You know, so communion is more than just uh, uh, you know, stand here, sit, kneel, sing. Uh, it's not just another part of mass. It's the deepest form of intimacy we can have with Christ on earth, and you can only have that level of intimacy if you're if you're in that covenant relationship uh, in that sacramental life of the church. And sadly, some of our separated brethren are not there. You know, so we again we but but to to just give them that, you know, that'd be like sharing my wife with a stranger. I mean, with sharing my, I mean, you're not you don't have that level of intimacy and communion, you know that that, that I have. You know what I'm saying? I'm not right. trying to say anything scandalous. Here. I'm just saying. No, no, you know, no, no. I mean, it, you know, it's it's uh, it's more than just um, a ritual. Right. You know, you're not actually saying anything that Saint Paul didn't say himself too sharing communion with with demons. I mean, he writes about this in in his letters too. And he says, you know, when you receive the sacrifice that has been sacrificed to demons, you're sharing a communion with them. And that's, I'm not calling people demons. Don't get me wrong. What I'm saying is St. Paul writes about this and he writes about that's the, the importance and the power of the Eucharist, just like it's the importance and the power of the sacrament of marriage as well, mm-hmm. is that we are in true communion. And, you know, that image is, quite intentional. And it's a very powerful image, the image of marriage uh, as an image of Christ's relationship to his bride, the church, is very much the same image that we can hold in our minds. Again, it's an analogy, but it's an analogy that really has powerful meaning for us. It's why marriage is a sacrament. It's why in the book of Revelation, it's referred to as the wedding supper of the Lamb, the true communion with the Lamb who himself was slain and gave himself to feed us. That's what is, uh, you know, once you start going down that road, you realize the beautiful, uh, you know, wedding imagery and the the Eucharistic imagery is, they're all very similar. And it's it's a beautiful, it's why it's why really the Eastern Church does a great job too of of depicting what marriage truly is and how it is related to the Eucharist. Ah, I love it. Sorry, now my mind's going in a million different directions. <laughs> I, I think about it. We're, we're not here to talk about about marriage, but 
gosh, we we certainly could, you know. <laughs> well, same thing at Genesis, right? That that uh, therefore a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and the two become one, right? right. That, that's it, to my in my mind, that's a Eucharist, a foreshadowing of a Eucharistic image of communion with Christ and His Church. You look at yeah. Ephesians chapter five and, and many other places. You know, you see you see that beautiful imagery, and it it makes itself known right in in the beginning of Scripture. You know, we started tonight's conversation discussing this cruise you're going on, the Good News Marriage Cruise. And here we are kind of coming back to the imagery of marriage in the concept, in the the connection with communion. You know, as you say, let the two be joined as one. And what God has joined, let no man put asunder, right? That is also the same invitation that we receive when we go to Mass. And that is that we are called to renew that communion that we share with our God and with the body of Christ in receiving Holy Communion. And how do we do that? But at the beginning of Mass, of course, we have the, the penitential rite in which we acknowledge our sins and, and are then um, those, especially venial sins, those are wiped away that we might truly worthily receive the body and blood of Christ at the end of mass. Um, there's a reason why the church refers to the Eucharist as the source and summit of the Christian life, because it, it is the source of which Christ's sacrifice is applied to us. And it's also what we are working towards as we, as we go and receive from the altar, we are, re, we are participating in that wedding supper of the lamb, which is the consummation and the recapitulation of all things in Christ. Um, so yeah, marriage imagery is quite a, quite appropriate for this. Deacon, however, unfortunately, as is our custom, we've run out of time for this evening's chat, but we're going to pick up this conversation next week. We have one more little section to go, a little portion of the section, before we get to look at our response to the great gift of the Eucharist. And so when we come back again next week together, we're going to pick up our conversation with paragraph 27. Uh, and again, kind of wrap this up. Uh, and But in the meantime, we invite you to download the this actual document, The Mystery of the Eucharist in the Life of the Church. You can find a link to it on uh, our Facebook page, which is Living Stones Media. You can also download previous episodes of the show at materdeiradio.com. But Deacon, until we gather again next week, might we have a blessing? May Almighty God bless you and keep you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week here on Living Stones. I'm your co-host, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, and joining me from the studios in South Bend, Indiana, is the man whose childhood dream was the inspiration for Barry Manilow's Weekend in New England, <laughs> the one and only Ken Hellenius. <laughs> Ken. <laughs> wow. Uh, uh, I got nothing. Oh, my gosh. I got you, man. You got me. You literally got me. You've been listening to Living Stones with Ken Hellenius and Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Living Stones is produced at the studios of Modern Day Radio in Portland, Oregon. For more information about this show, go to moderndayradio.com. That's M-A-T-E-R-D-E-I radio.com.